Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 6. Follow the Money. In which a whole new type of advertising appears overnight and turns into a giant bubble. The humble billboard undergoes a transformation so radical it attracts private equity firms. And the next big thing is content marketing. For the first time, the bosses of Australia's big group buying websites, Catch of the Day, Scoop On, Jump On It, Spreets and Kudo, are sharing a single conference stage. It's June 2011. Beforehand, in the Mumbrella 360 Speakers Lounge, the four men treat each other with wariness. For months, they've been trading barbs in the media about who's the biggest, and the rivalry is bitter. On the far left of the stage is Colin Fabig, the only one wearing a tie. Fabig's South African accent is still distinct, although he's been in Australia for more than a decade. 18 months before this conference, Fabig had launched Jump On It. US group buying player Living Social has already snapped up a stake in his business. In South Africa, Fabig had founded and sold two new media businesses before the dot-com crash of 2000. After emigrating to Australia, he moved into online marketing and the education sector before spotting the boom in group buying. Fabig is a serial entrepreneur, but not a typical one. He's a proponent of transcendental meditation and hypnotherapy. Seating next to Fabig is Hezi Leibovich. He and his more outgoing brother Gabby have already founded two group buying ventures, Scoop On and Catch of the Day. The Leibovichs are in the midst of a legal battle with US group buying giant Groupon. In Australia, they cheekily managed to register the groupon.com.au website domain and trademark first, and the US-based Groupon has been forced to launch in Australia as Star Deals as a result. Wearing a blue and white striped polo shirt, Leibovich seems the least comfortable speaker on the stage. Leaning back in his chair, he appears disengaged, mostly looking away from his rivals as they speak. The third panellist is the newly wealthy Dean McAvoy, wearing an open-necked black shirt. Five months earlier, he sold his site Spreets to Yahoo 7 for a lot of money. Before we get in the argument about who is and isn't the number one, 
I thought it was important we have a fair fight today, McAvoy tells the crowd. To laughter from the audience, he reaches under the table and pulls out four pairs of boxing gloves. The final panellist is the only one of the four from a conventional business background. Billy Tucker is CEO of Kudo, owned by Nine and Microsoft's joint venture, Nine MSM. Tucker moved across from Microsoft to join the group buying Gold Rush in 2010 and launched Kudo in just 10 weeks. I'm standing at the lectern to stage right, moderating the discussion. My monitor warns the session is already overrunning by two minutes. But there's one obvious question I'm still dying to ask the panellists. This is a massive bubble, isn't it? Tucker turns to his left and looks up at me. Smiling, he says in a broad Glaswegian accent, don't talk rubbish. 18 months earlier, before the gold rush. The exhilarating and frightening thing about the media is the pace of change. In the space of a decade, everything changed. And nobody has any idea how things will look in another decade. With this disruption came new opportunities it was almost impossible to tell which trends really would lead to a fundamental shift and which were a fad. Group buying would prove to be one of the decade's fads, but a half-billion-dollar fad. Private equity companies raced to invest in the out-of-home advertising industry because they realised that the digitisation of billboards would radically increase the amount of advertising inventory. That proved to be real. And content marketing would be a real change in how brands interacted with the media. But not everyone would be a winner. If the secret of making money from a media bubble is getting out in time, Dean McAvoy judged his exit from group marketing perfectly. McAvoy made his own luck. After graduating from the University of Sydney with a commerce degree, he drifted into the marketing and web development industry before taking a detour into the hospitality business, owning his own bar. The experience of running the Roxbury in Sydney's student suburb of Glebe provided the impetus for his first big startup idea, Booking Angel, which he began working on in 2003. It was an online restaurant reservation service ahead of its time. Eventually, McAvoy moved out to Silicon Valley to give Booking Angel its best hope of success. But Booking Angel ran out of money in 2009 meaning it would soon be time for him to come home to Australia. He was about to follow a great Australian tradition of spotting somebody else's idea overseas and being first to bring it down under. It's a practice that goes right back to the early days of media. Producer Reg Grundy used to pay an agent in the US to film American game shows as they went to air and send him the reels. That was how he came to be making the game show Sale of the Century in 1969. Similarly, the closeness of Australia's breakfast television shows to the format of their US counterparts is no coincidence. More recently, Australia's female-focused daily email newsletter, The Squiz, launched with more than a passing resemblance to US offering of The Skim. While McAvoy was on the US West Coast, a new media idea was taking off, group buying. Launching in late 2008, the website Groupon was based on the idea that if a pool of customers could be brought together to buy a particular product, it would be worth the retailer's while to offer a hefty discount. 
In turn, the customers would need to act quickly with deals expiring after 24 hours when the clock would reset on the next new deal. A countdown on the website would create urgency designed to persuade consumers to buy immediately. Named for the combination of group and coupon, Groupon would clip the ticket on the sales. It operated city by city and country by country. Potential customers signed up for daily emails relevant to their hometown. Meanwhile, armies of salespeople chased restaurants and retailers willing to offer a big discount to fill their tables on a quiet night of the week. Groupon's launch was stratospheric. In months, Groupon had hired more than 300 staff. It reached $1 billion unicorn valuation in little more than a year. The fastest company to pull that off. But it was also an idea that would be relatively easy to copy. First mover advantage in any market would count for a lot. And in Australia, McAvoy was among the first movers. With Booking Angel winding down, he was back in Australia in time to attend 2009 Christmas drinks at startup incubator Polonizer. Incubators link entrepreneurs with investment capital and advisors in the hope of hatching fast-growing businesses. He pitched the concept to Polonizer's co-founder, Phil Maul. I was filling up his wine as much as I could before I was like, I saw this pretty cool thing in Silicon Valley. It's this group buying thing. We should have a look at it, McAvoy would later tell Business Insider. McAvoy was introduced to Justice Hammer, marketing manager at online price comparison site GetPrice, who'd been thinking about the same idea on behalf of a group of German investors. They'd be co-founders. McAvoy would be CEO and Hammer, chief marketing officer. Little more than a month later, on the 4th of February 2010, Spreets launched. The gold rush was on. Living Social had launched a couple of weeks before. Scoopon launched the same day. Meanwhile, Australia's traditional media players initially watched from the sidelines with interest. The model was a fascinating one for the TV companies, not least because of their ability to promote deals at a city level. But none of them had been nimble enough to quickly launch something. As the public began to sign up, new entrants began to crowd into the market. There were no economic moats. It wasn't that hard an idea to replicate. The name of the game was using your sales team to get good deals and building a big email database to market them as quickly as possible. McAvoy and Hammer made a quick financial exit. After approaches from Groupon and Living Social, they decided to run a sale process. Yahoo 7 won the auction and raced through six weeks of due diligence. On Thursday, the 20th of January 2011, Spreets called a press conference at the Sheraton on the Park Hotel in Sydney. In record time for an Australian media startup, they'd already sold in less than a year. Normally, companies are as coy as possible about the cost of their acquisitions. Shareholders don't like it if it looks like they've paid too much. If the number comes out at all, it can be months later, buried in the small print when the company's annual report is released to the ASX. This time, Yahoo 7 and McAvoy had other ideas, as it suited them to make Spreets look as big as possible to deter further competitors. After the press conference, McAvoy stood between Hammer and his new boss, Yahoo 7 CEO Rowan Lund, in the now empty hotel meeting room while I interviewed them about the deal on camera. 
I slipped in a question about the price, not really expecting an answer. McAvoy immediately volunteered, 40 million. That was a slight exaggeration. In reality, the number was $37.5 million. Lund explained the rationale for the big deal. The space is exploding. We're seeing social, mobility, e-commerce completely changing the way we're all using the web at the moment. Leadership is important. The big get bigger. The key to success is about having massive reach to go out and find people who are interested in offers and find amazing deals to send to them. It's a perfect complement to our business. Yahoo 7's big move into group buying was watched with interest by its competitors at 9 and 10. Team 9 took a different approach. Somewhat late to the party, 9MSN launched Kudo in August 2010, led by Microsoft Australia's Director of Business Development, Billy Tucker. Marketing firepower overcame the slow start. Heavily promoted across the 9MSN website and on the 9 network, Kudo soon became a major player. The market kept getting more crowded. Soon, just about every restaurant, bar, hotel and hot air balloon experience company in Australia was being bombarded with calls from the sales staff of competing group buying companies. It was becoming harder for the group buying brands to find good deals. Nonetheless, the public responded, with some customers signing up to every daily email and becoming savvy at spotting deals they could actually use. For a few months, the growth was exponential. By 2011, something like half a billion dollars would be spent in Australia via group buying. A lot of people were going out for two-for-one Tuesday night pizzas. The model soon began to fall apart, though. By 2011, there were up to 100 players in the market offering some form of group buying. Hence the unedifying disputes about who was biggest. The day after the Spreet sale, Kudo released data from audience research company Nielsen claiming it had overtaken Spreet's for getting the most traffic to its website. Hours later, Spreet's hit back. McAvoy wrote a snarky guest post for Mumbrella asking... Has anyone told them yet that they are running a group buying business, not an online advertising business? Anyone familiar with group buying knows that a big audience does not a market leader make. Then four days later, it was the turn of Colin Fabig, boss of Jump On It and Living Social, with his own Mumbrella guest post. The metric that really mattered, he argued, was the question of who had the biggest social media reach. To not include Facebook fans and email subscribers in the evaluation of an industry that's based on daily email alerts and sharing deals with friends via social networking shows a lack of understanding of the business, wrote Fabig. The other member of the Big Four, Catch of the Day, soon joined in too. Founder Gabby Leibovich was even rougher on his rivals in his blog post. Unlike some pretenders out there, our database was not bought, our customers are not joining to win an iPad, our Facebook followers are not based in Guatemala, and Google hasn't seen a cent from us in regard to AdWords. Unlike the media moguls of old, employees of the Packers and the Murdochs once brawled in the street for control of a printing press, the group buying war was fought electronically, via snarky guest posts in the trade press and mud-throwing on the CEO's personal blogs, 
discreetly flagged for the press by PR people. Groupon finally sorted out its trademark battle with Catch of the Day and launched in Australia on the 15th of February 2011. Its first offer was $8 all-you-can-eat macarons. According to Kudos Tucker, the offer was illegal. He wrote on his own blog, Clicking on the ad for $8 all-you-can-eat macaroons takes you to a sign-up page. No such offer exists. Deceptive? Yes. Bait and switch? I think so. Unless I'm missing something, this type of bait-and-switch advertising is way out of line and threatens to damage the market as a whole. Indeed, the public was beginning to tire of the constant emails and becoming sceptical of whether they'd ever be able to use vouchers when they did buy them. Public complaints about shonky customer service were growing. By the time the four bosses came together on stage at Mumbrella 360 in June 2011, they realised that if the industry was to survive, it needed to clean up its act. That day, the four agreed they'd commit to a code of conduct. Tucker insisted on stage there was no bubble. He quoted statistics that suggested the public had spent something like half a billion dollars on discounted group buying offers. This is a once-in-a-decade market opportunity. From a standing start, group buying will become 70% the size of display advertising in 12 months, which is incredible. It's no bubble, albeit it looks like one, given its growth. It took another five months to release that code of conduct. It committed the companies to avoiding misleading advertising, to offer only genuine discounts, and to be clear about the small print exceptions. In the meantime, News Corp finally joined the fray, taking a half stake in our deal. Ten took the other half. It was a bubble. And almost as quickly as it had grown, it started to deflate. During 2012, the global poster child Groupon saw 80% of its market capitalisation vanish. Tucker left Kudo at the end of 2011. By November 2012, he'd changed his tune. He told the Australian Financial Review, The group buying sector as a whole has got itself into a pickle. It has become addicted to this drug of low-value commodity products. It has effectively become a reseller of products out of China. There are too many emails, too many deals, too many service issues and too many unused vouchers. And that is undermining the market. The timing of his own exit from Kudo was, he quipped, impeccable. It was not a fun Christmas for those working in group buying. Early December 2012 saw Spreets make most of its staff redundant. Living Social had a round of redundancies too. Yahoo 7 gave up on Spreets in February 2013, telling its email subscribers that it would now merely send them offers from other sites. And in July 2013, it was time for 9MSN to quit Kudo, selling the website to Aussie Commerce. The price was never publicly disclosed, although a footnote in Nine's 2014 annual report disclosed revenue of $500,715 labelled Proceeds on Disposal of Subsidiary, which was probably it. CEO Mike Sneesby, who'd taken over from Tucker, tried to make the best of it in the sale announcement. This is the perfect fit for Kudo and for all consumers who love buying online. In an industry that continues to consolidate, it makes sense for Aussie Commerce to take the Kudo business forward. The bubble had burst. 
making moves. It's hard to tell the difference between a bubble and a trend. Outdoor advertising was about to go through a shift. Digital disruption usually spelled trouble for the incumbents. For the outdoor industry, which had been running pretty much the same way for more than a century, it was going to create a huge opportunity. And unlike other forms of digital disruption, this one was going to favour the incumbents. In 2010, the outdoor advertising industry went legit. Out-of-home advertising had always operated at a different pace to the rest of the media industry. Because the only content that the outdoor medium usually displays is the advertising message itself, there's nothing particularly glamorous about the sector. For years, outdoor was one of the blokier, murkier mediums. It was among Australia's first advertising industries, with family-owned outdoor companies going back to the 1800s. Among the first was the Australasian advertising company, which began in 1840. Stories abounded that certain outdoor companies around the world would give under-the-table payments to the media agencies that put clients' business their way. And outdoor was also the ultimate transactional medium. Jeff Brown, in his role as executive director at Nine under Eddie Maguire, had infamously described running a television business as merely managing a bucket of contracts. But that was a description that would have been far better applied to the outdoor industry. Outdoor advertising companies are the ultimate practitioners of media arbitrage. They sign contracts to place their billboards on other people's property, and then they sell on the rights to advertise on those billboards. At one end of the spectrum, that property owner might simply be a lucky farmer whose field happens to be next to a busy motorway. At the other end sit shopping centres, airports or local councils who once in a while run a tender process that will decide for years who gets to manage those sites. The days of outdoor advertising, or out of home as it preferred to be known, as the wild west of media, were coming to an end. The owners of the outdoor companies wanted a bigger slice of the advertising pie. For every marketing dollar, less than four cents were going to the outdoor sector. Magazines were taking six cents, radio nearly eight cents, and printed directories just over eight cents. Online was growing fast and taking 19 cents, while newspapers accounted for 25 cents in the dollar. Television was still on top, taking 30. Through their industry body, the Outdoor Media Association, they decided they needed a media metric. Media metrics provide legitimacy, with everyone in theory buying advertising on a level playing field. Television had the Oztam ratings, newspapers and magazines had the Audit Bureau of Circulations, and radio had a diary system. But nobody knew how many members of the public were going to see a billboard. If the OMA members could prove the size of their audience, they'd give the media agencies a bigger reason to spend money with them. It took nearly six years of work But on the 23rd of February 2010, the OMA unveiled MOVE. The name is one of those acronyms where you come up with a snappy name first, then reverse engineer the words. MOVE, they decided, stood for Measurement of Outdoor Visibility and Exposure. MOVE was the brainchild of Jerry Thorley, CEO of iCorp, the out-of-home company bought by Network 10 in 2000. Thorley had observed the outdoor measurement system used in the UK 
Postar. It was delivering the outdoor industry a far bigger proportion of UK advertising revenue than the medium was pulling in in Australia. In the first step towards MOVE, in late 2004, a gathering of the outdoor clans had been organised at the Royal Sydney Yacht Squadron in the pleasant harbourside suburb of Kirribilli. All of the major players were there. Those invited to the meeting included Brendan Cook, who'd founded his outdoor company, Outdoor Network Australia, back in 1989. He would later shorten the name to Network when it floated on the ASX in 2002. And later he would rebrand it again to O Media. Also present at that key 2004 meeting was Richard Herring, newly appointed CEO of APN Outdoor. APN Outdoor was owned by APN News and Media, which had its roots in Queensland newspapers as Australian provincial newspapers. Herring had come into the business after the company he worked for, Cody, was taken over by Tony O'Reilly's APN, which was building an outdoor business by snapping up Cody, Australian posters, bus pack and captive media. Steve McCarthy, CEO of Adshell, was in the room too. Adshell was half-owned by US media giant Clear Channel, with APN News and Media owning the other half. Adshell's specialty was street furniture, ads on bus shelters in other words. French outdoor giant JC Decaux was represented by CEO Steve O'Connor, who'd just moved across to the company from Buspack. And the final outdoor company at the table was Queensland billboard company Goa, represented by co-founder Brian Tyquin. They agreed to ask Adland veteran Ian Muir, the man who'd set up the Oztan TV rating system, to lead the $10 million move project. It would be far more ambitious than the UK's Postar. Over more than five years, the project catalogued every single outdoor advertising site in the country, owned by Outdoor Media Association members. The project team then plotted the locations against government data covering consumer movements on commuting and leisure journeys to calculate not just how many consumers passed all 60,000 ad sites, but their demographics too. And then an army of 15,000 researchers wearing special camera-equipped glasses went on trips past the sites to calculate how likely they were to glance at any individual billboard. The idea was that the extra audience information would give media agencies the confidence to double the amount they allocated to outdoor when planning ad campaigns. Media researcher John Grono, who'd represented the media agencies on the project, told the 2010 launch event, I have never seen anything as intellectually daunting and so difficult to build. Nobody has ever done this before in the world. But Move was not the only thing that was about to turn outdoor advertising into a boom sector. The sector had innovated before. The invention of neon signs in the early 1900s had changed Australia's cityscapes for the next half century. And now LED technology was finally reaching the point where digital billboards were visible, even in bright sunlight. And manufacturing costs were falling fast. The benefit of this for the outdoor companies was that digital billboards would give them much more advertising inventory to sell. One billboard could now instantly become three or four or a hundred for that matter. Outdoor ads were booked in monthly cycles or rather on four week cycles. This allowed billboard companies to squeeze 13 months worth of ads into any given year. 
Once posted, the static ads would then be up for four weeks. But digital ads could rotate every few seconds. A digital billboard would be able to cycle through several different ads. And the creative executions for the ads could be switched, depending on time of day. McDonald's would be able to advertise McMuffins in the morning and McNuggets at night. The outdoor companies might have to give advertisers a slight discount on the price that they previously charged for one static ad, but instead they'd be able to charge several different advertisers for the same ad space. Suddenly, the outdoor sector looked like a good one to be investing in. Private equity firms noticed the opportunity and began circling. In general, private equity companies invest when they believe they can buy an asset at a decent price, fund at least part of the deal by loading the target company with debt, improve management of the business, and exit five or so years later with a good profit. Some hold for the long term, but they are the exceptions. And as CVC's disastrous investment in Nine was demonstrating, there's no guarantee of the short-term profitable exit. APN News and Media kicked things off in the outdoor sector in February 2012, selling half of APN Outdoor to Quadrant Private Equity for $190 million. Every media company seems to find itself in joint ventures and holding minority stakes. Sometimes it's about spreading the risk and at other times it's the only way to have a seat at a crowded table. But APN News and Media was in more three-legged races than most. As well as the partnership with Quadrant in half-owning APN Outdoor, it owned half of outdoor ad company AdShell in a joint venture with Clear Channel. And that wasn't APN's only partnership with Clear Channel. They were also partners with APN in Australian Radio Network, which owned two radio networks, Mix FM and Classic Hits. Although it was listed on the ASX, APN News and Media's fortunes were closely tied to those of the Irish-based independent news and media, which owned 39.1% of the company. But APM was an unwanted child. INM had tried to sell its stake in 2008, but had been unable to find a buyer at the right price and gave up the next year. In February 2013, relations hit rock bottom. INM publicly called for APN News and Media's CEO, Brett Chenoweth, to be sacked, saying it had lost confidence in him. Chenoweth, Chairman Peter Hunt and three other board directors resigned two days later. Board director Peter Cosgrove, who'd been around the company since its beginnings, stepped up as chairman. A week after Quadrant's investment in APN Outdoor was revealed, Champ Private Equity was approved by the regulators to buy O-Media for $163 million, taking the company off the ASX. The two private equity companies could smell that there was money to be made in the outdoor sector. Kings of content. Outdoor advertising was not the only dowdy part of the media that digital was going to transform into something much more exciting. There was a bubble coming to content marketing too. Content marketing had its roots in the world of customer magazines, or custom publishing as it was known. This was the part of the magazine industry that would publish custom magazines on behalf of brands, in-flight magazines, supermarket magazines and the like. Then brands realised that they did not have to limit sharing their worldview to magazines. They could become digital publishers in their own right. Content marketing was born. 
One of the tenets of content marketing was to avoid the hard sell of pure advertising, instead talking about topics that potential customers might be interested in. The theory went that this was a more subtle way of building a trusting relationship with customers. In a market where journalism jobs were disappearing, it meant a new career option for journalists. ANZ Bank was an early proponent of brand journalism. It created a huge daily publishing operation called ANZ Blue Notes, based in its Melbourne Docklands headquarters, which launched in April 2014. Customers were signed up to a daily email. In turn, this would send them to the ANZ Blue Notes website. It was a big operation with former Australian Financial Review associate editor Andrew Cornell and former BRW publisher Amanda Gome leading the project, which would be run much like a traditional newsroom. The ambition was for it to be a source of education about the banking industry, not a propaganda machine for ANZ. It was well-resourced. The staffing was bigger than many specialist trade magazines, and ANZ Blue Notes signed up for Newswire subscriptions, including the expensive Bloomberg service. Blue Notes was launched at a swanky event at ANZ's headquarters by CEO Mike Smith. Smith had recently signed up to LinkedIn's Influencer Program, which gave a platform to the great and the good of the business world. The week of the launch, he posted about the digital shift. We also know part of this transformation is being more transparent, more engaged and more responsive in our communication. Content marketing was an idea that tickled the egos of a certain type of executive. Alex Malley, chief executive of accountancy body CPA, took that approach. If Richard Branson could build the Virgin brand by making himself famous, why couldn't Malley become the inspirational face of chartered accountants? Malley travelled the world, with his organisation paying for him to interview the likes of the first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong, for CPA videos. CPA even paid nine to air a Malley-hosted business show, built a personalised website in which he offered career advice to young accountants, and promoted his book, On the Truth You Need to Build a Big Life, The Naked CEO, through millions of dollars of billboard advertising. Mumbrella's awards jury gave the book project a silver award in the content strategy category in 2015. More widely, brands began to think they could create content that the public would choose to watch. Boost Mobile commissioned a video drama about young Australians surviving a zombie outbreak by using their phones to stick together. Bonds paid actress Rachel Taylor to star in and direct a YouTube rom-com featuring the clothing brand. Whiskey brand Shivas Regal commissioned a series of mini documentaries about friendship. Marketers' newfound interest in content marketing also created new opportunities for publishers. Native advertising became another buzz phrase. In the case of native advertising, a publisher created content in its own voice, which it ran on its own masthead on behalf of a brand. This wasn't the advertorial of old, talking about the sponsor but rather content that merely positioned the brand within the debate. Combank might, for instance, commission a youth website like Junkie to write an article offering tips on savings strategies for 20-somethings. The only connection between the brand and the content would be the logo at the end, perhaps with a link. The beauty of native advertising for publishers was that rather than simply charging to run an ad, they could also charge for their services in creating the content. An ecosystem sprang up. 
The publishers weren't always able to keep up with the demand for native content, so some of them quietly began outsourcing beyond their own journalists. The custom magazine publishers of old had plenty of transferable skills and started to rename themselves as content marketing agencies. The promise that a publication's best journalism skills would now go towards creating brand content was not always kept. There was more and more outsourcing to these content marketing agencies. For example, at the height of the trend, a brand commissioned Fairfax to write a series of articles about men's watches. The deal included a fee for writing the piece. The publication subcontracted the work to a large content agency for a slice of the fee. In turn, the agency outsourced it to a smaller agency, again taking a cut along the way. And this agency passed the work to a young student in Adelaide who actually wrote the piece for a tiny slice of what the watch brand had first paid. Those further up the chain had no idea that the work was being farmed out below them. The new ecosystem extended into technology too. Getting the public to read all of this new brand-funded content, whether it sat on publishers' own sites or on the brand homepage, was an emerging challenge. Two Israeli-funded tech startups quickly reached global scale, helping to solve the problem. Outbrain, funded in 2006, and Taboola, founded in 2007, created what they dubbed recommendation engines. They created small blocks that could be inserted onto the websites of big publishers. The blocks offered links both to other articles within the publisher's website and also to content sitting on brands' own websites. Commercially, it was a good idea. For financially challenged publishers, it was welcome. A consumer clicking on a link headed advice on how to sign up for a new credit card would be a solid prospect for a finance company, for example. Outbrain and Taboola, and other copycats that followed, charged the brands for sending them the traffic and split the revenue with the publishers. For every ANZ Blue Notes that hired new staff, there were many more brands that wanted a content marketing strategy without having to recruit more people. So they outsourced, creating the content marketing gold rush for agencies. The man who tapped into the moment best of all was Craig Hodges. Hodges was a brilliant salesman, and he'd already seen a bubble or two. Early in his career, he'd worked in a sales role at Spike Radio, the wildest child of the 2000 dot-com bust. And then Hodges went on to his next venture, which was to be involved in founding a custom publishing operation, Edge, in 2002. It put Hodges in the perfect spot to see the content marketing wave rolling in. In 2010, he sold out of Edge and launched King Content. He would later explain the rationale in a meta piece of native content on the Sydney Morning Herald. In the feature about the content marketing boom sponsored by Outbrain, yes, there was content marketing to promote content marketing, Hodges explained. I could see that content marketing was going to be a better option than custom publishing. It was about brands investing in their websites and becoming publishers, providing the content and telling the stories themselves, just like a magazine or newspaper does, and having a direct relationship with their customers. Hodges would become the content marketing industry's number one salesman. For a time, it seemed like he was a speaker at any media industry conference that covered the topic. He positioned himself and King Content as the leading authority on content marketing. And when it came time to sell, Hodges judged his run to perfection. He appointed a quietly spoken Swede, Per Lundgren, 
to run the process for him. Lundgren's niche was in helping independent Australian media companies to either raise investment or find a lucrative exit. Lundgren's Redstone advisors achieved this by helping vendors craft the most optimistic possible story of their company's success and future prospects. A key part of his strategy was ensuring there were multiple bidders and running a sale process in which potential buyers would be asked to make indicative offers against a particular deadline. This competitive tension could then be used to persuade companies to bid each other upwards. Ahead of the sale, the Sydney-based King Content went on an expansion spree, opening offices in Hong Kong, Singapore, the UK and US. In Australia, about $100 million a year was now being spent on content marketing, with King Content pulling in about 15% of that. The future projections in the King Content Information Memorandum looked impressive. King Content was a hot target. Media companies liked the look of it because content marketing was a way of getting beyond advertising and circulation revenues. In late 2013, Fairfax Media's Greg Highwood told the ASX that content marketing was going to be part of a diversification strategy. Communications holding companies, the owners of traditional media agencies, also liked the look of owning a content marketing agency as yet another way of billing marketing clients. Omnicom Media Group joined the bidders for King Content too. But the eventual winner of the King Content auction, announced on the 21st of August 2015, was the ASX-listed media monitoring company, Icentia. Icentia had just been through its own financial transformation thanks to private equity. Once again, Quadrant Private Equity was the player. For most of its life, Icentia had been known as Media Monitors. Media monitoring went back decades, originally as a highly labour-intensive task where companies and government clients paid to have teams of researchers look out for every mention of them in the press, clip the article out of the newspaper and send it to them. Initially, there were a string of media monitoring companies across the country, which were gradually acquired or merged until most ended up under the Media Monitor's banner. CEO John Kroll's father had founded Kroll's Media Monitoring in the 1970s. Gradually, the service had become digitised and covered all the major media channels, including print, TV, radio and online. Quadrant got involved in July 2010, buying a majority stake for a reported $160 million. The company rebranded in 2012 as Sentia, and a year later to iSentia. And as is the way with private equity, Quadrant got a lucrative return four years later, in June 2014, when it floated the company on the ASX at a market capitalization of around $500 million. Over the next year, the Icentia share price continued to rise. Icentia was keen to get into content marketing and put in a blockbuster bid for King Content, $36 million up front, which would rise to $48 million if Hodges could keep his promises around King Content's future projections. Before the ASX had opened on the morning it announced the acquisition, CEO John Kroll's PR people teed up a phone interview for me. Was there anything to be concerned about, I asked, regarding the recent demise of the Content Marketing World conference in Sydney? Could content marketing be peaking? No, argued Kroll. 
I've done a lot of work with consultants in the market and we still see a real growing need for major brands to connect with their audiences through content marketing. As we spoke on the phone that day, Icentia's market capitalization was sitting at around $680 million. Could Kroll join the Three Commas Club and hit $1 billion? I asked. Kroll was optimistic. I certainly think we can be a billion dollar company, but I will leave it up to the market to decide when that happens. I then got Hodges on the phone. Could he really hit his targets over the next five years to get the full $48 million? He was similarly optimistic and a lot more to the point. He replied in just one word. Yes. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in Northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.